0: Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in First and Second Samuel because today we are continuing in a teaching series that we actually started earlier this year. That we that's entitled the Big picture. And what we are seeking to do in this series is to teach and preach overview messages for all 66 books of the Bible. And what our rhythm has been, basically, is to take about six to eight weeks, and we preach through one or two books at a time, and then we take a break, like we did this summer, and we go through another book, or we do another a little series, a mini-series, like we did this this summer with the book of Colossians. And you know, as a church, one of our goals is that we would be what we call biblically rooted, that we would grow in our knowledge of the word of God and understanding who God is through his word and how to have faith and to live our lives for Jesus. And we also wanna have a basic understanding of how each book in the Bible contributes to the overall storyline of the Bible because the the book of the, the Bible ultimately leads us to the person of Jesus, and that's why we are doing this series. We're going to jump in and out of it. By God's grace, we plan to preach until about the end of, of uh, October in this series, and then we, we're looking to jump into the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and begin to go through that book uh, beginning at the end of October. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that we went through the book of Ruth, which is the Cinderella story of the Old Testament. And today we have come to 1st and 2nd Samuel. And I wanna point out that 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, does anyone know what comes after 1st and 2nd Chronicles? Ezra and Nehemiah. Those are eight books uh, that are in our modern day Bibles. They are divided into eight books, but that's not how they were divided originally. They were originally just in four books. But I think because of their length, uh, we're not exactly sure, but I think because of their length that they were divided uh, into eight books, probably to fit them on, uh, on, the, on scrolls. And so our plan is, as we go through those books today, uh, not all of them, but as we go through the book of First and Second Samuel, we're going to go through that as one single unit, and, they, and then we will do that with the rest of those books in the following weeks. But in 1, uh, 1 Samuel, it begins near the end of the rule of the judges. That's where it's set, at the end of the rule of the judges before Israel had a king. And it was a period of moral chaos and spiritual darkness as we said several times, it's because the people had rejected the law of God, they had rejected God and they were doing what was right in their own eyes, much like we the culture that we are living in today. And 1st and 2nd Samuel recounts how three men that God used transitioned these 12 kingless tribes of Israel into one unified kingdom. Now these three men were Samuel, he was a a prophet and he was the last judge of Israel. Then we had Saul who was we're going to see was the first king of Israel and then David who was the second and probably the most beloved king of Israel. And so it's a book about the last judge and the first two kings of Israel. And it teaches us a lot of things. It's going to teach us about humility. It's going to teach us about pride. And it's also going to teach us about repentance, humility, pride, and repentance. And, you know, it's another thing that I love about the book of Samuel, is that it is a very practical book for various reasons. And one of the reasons that it's practical is is that it teaches us or it deals with those deep, unfulfilled longings and desires of the heart. You you know what I'm talking about? Deep, unfulfilled longings and desires of the heart. We, We all have them. When was the earliest time that you realized that you have deep longings in your heart? I remember, the first time I remember was when I was little, and I was like, man, I wish I could stay up as late as my mom and dad do and get to do anything I wanna do. That was a longing of my heart. Then I became a parent, and I was like, man, I wish I could be like my kids and go to bed when my kids do and don't have the responsibilities that I have. Or maybe you you get older and you're like renting in an apartment you're like, man, I just wish I could have my own house. I'm throwing money away. I just wish I could move into my own house. Then you get your own house, you're like, man, I wish that I was able to just rent again and didn't have to have all these responsibilities. You you know what I'm saying? You're single, right? Man, I wish I was married. You get married. That one, anyway. Let me ask you this, what is your if only this morning? We, we usually all have at least one going on in our life. And it's usually something that you wish that the Lord would give you, or you wish that he would take it away. And this book teaches us how to deal with those desires with humility. And it also teaches us what happens when we don't walk in humility with those desires, but rather walk in pride. And then it also teaches us how to repent and turn to the Lord if we walk in pride and blow it. And so we're going to see that all throughout this book. And in chapter one, we're introduced in chapter one, uh, verse one, we're introduced to a, a man, an Israelite man, by the name of El Elkanah. Let's look at verse two. It says, Elkanah had two wives. All right. He had two wives. Now, I'm not sure why he had two wives. Um, I don't know if it's because he was doing what was right in his own eyes, or maybe he was a kinsman redeemer like Boaz was. We don't know exactly why he had two wives, but he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions of Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival Peninnah used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to, pro- to-, to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Now Cana, her husband, said to her, now pay attention to this, gentlemen. This is very instructive. Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Here it is. Am I not more than 10 sons? Seriously? Reminds me of when I was a, a young man. I mean, your wife is weeping and she's fasting because of this deep, it's really a godly desire to have children, and he basically says, man, what's, what's the problem? Why is that so important to you, especially since he already has kids through another wife? Why is that so important to you? And then he has the audacity to say, because, you know, you've got the total package right here. You don't need anything else. But, you know, he's making a mistake that we can all often make, can't we, when we are uh, talking to people, when we are counseling other people. And, you know, we should always be a church that seeks to speak truth and love with one another. We need to learn how to skillfully and wisely apply the gospel of Jesus to one another. But sometimes we just need to be quiet when someone's talking to us. Sometimes we need to realize they don't need the right answer. A lot of times we know what the right answer is, don't we? But we just need to be heard. We need to be listened to. And, and God placed Hannah in a place where she doesn't want to be. We know that God placed her there there because in verse 5 and 6, it says that the Lord is the one who closed her womb. And then to add insult to injury, God allows Peninnah to provoke her. God allows that. God could have, you know, taken care of her, but he doesn't. And what what is she doing? She's reminding her day after day of her, if only reminding her of what she doesn't have, what she desires to have. And maybe this morning you are in a place where you actually can relate to Hannah. Um, You're struggling because you are in a place this morning that you don't want to be. And the thing is, it's not that you don't have faith in the Lord in the sense that you know that the, the Lord could do something about your situation. You know he could do it, but he's chosen not to. The Lord has chosen not to act. And the question that we need to ask this morning is what are we to do with that? When we come to a place where we know God could do something about it, but he's not. Well, if you're taking notes, the first gospel truth that I want us to see here is is that the humble pour out their hearts to the Lord. The humble pour out their hearts to the Lord. Hannah is going to show us what we should do when we have a godly desire and we realize that God is not allowing us to have it. Verse 10 says that Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She's deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She didn't quote, you know, I know that God causes all things to work together for good, so I'm fine. No, she is where she's at before the Lord. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, who was uh, the priest in the temple, he observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And Hannah is a great example of humility and faith. And it appears that she believed Psalm 84, verse 11. This is a, this is a verse that we, uh, a truth that we all need to get into our hearts that no good thing will the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. Do you believe that this morning? No good thing, if something's good for you, God will not withhold it if you will walk in obedience. You don't have to sin to get it. And we know that Hannah believes this because instead of fighting with her rival and instead of becoming bitter towards God, she turns to God and she just simply pours out her heart to God, her desires, what she wants. I think George Mueller nailed it when he said this. God is the only person we can fully pour our heart to, pour out our heart to. There are some things that we hide from family members and even close friends. We are ashamed to reveal everything to them. We try to make a good appearance before them, but God is the only person that we can truly open our heart to. He knows everything, and there is no reason to hide anything from him. He is all-knowing and omnipresent. God is the only person who will not judge us if we open our hearts to him. Friends might judge us and slander us, but God will not. God will not. And Hannah understood that, and she poured out her heart to the Lord, and God saw that it was good for her. And at his appointed time, he answered her and gave her a son, who she named Samuel, and he grew up to be a humble prophet and the last judge of Israel. And so when Samuel grows up he and he gets and he was old, the people came to him, and they demand from him a king. They say, we want a king that is like that all, like all the other nations have. We want to be like the world, in other words. And in 1 Samuel 8, verse 6, we read, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And so what does Samuel do? He pours out his heart to the Lord and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now you may be wondering, like I have before I really studied this passage, why God said that Israel was rejecting him by asking for a king. Because if you're familiar with the, the gospel story, you know that back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God made a promise that through Eve he would send a deliverer. God would would have a there would be a descendant of Eve who would come, that would come and destroy the work of Satan and deliver his people and restore everything as it ought to be. And that's all throughout the Old Testament. Even in Deuteronomy 17, where Moses explicitly says that God would choose and raise up a king from among them to rule over them. So, why is he saying that this is wrong, that, that the people are desiring a king? Well, the problem is not that they want a king, but rather why they want a king. Instead of trusting in God, instead of waiting on his timing, They want a human being like the the nations around them that they can look at and put their faith in a human, a person. They're thinking, if only we had a king. If only we had a king now, then all would go well with us. And if you're taking notes, this is where I want you to write down the second gospel truth, and that is that the proud doubt that father knows best. Now back in the 1950s, before I was born, there was this TV show called, it's hard to believe this, Father Knows Best. I mean, when was the last time you saw a TV show where father knew anything? Fathers used to have dignity and respect in, in the culture. And that's that's what that's what I'm kind of playing off of this morning but the proud doubt that the that the father knows best. And I think the Israelites were like our culture today. They don't believe that father knows best. And they believed that God might be withholding something from them. That God might be withholding something that's best from them. And you know this is a lie that we all must deal with. It's that, it's that same lie that Satan fed Adam and Eve back in the garden when they were standing next to the tree. He convinced Adam and Eve that God was withholding something good from them. And they thought they believed it, and it made them think, if only we could just eat from that tree. And Israel is thinking, if only we had a king like all the other nations, then everything would be right like it should be. And so Samuel tells, um, and God tells Samuel, you know what? Don't worry about them. I'm going to give them what they want, even though it's not what's best. And that's not a good thing. Listen, when God gives you what you want, when it's not what's best, it does not go well. And this is what happens to Israel in chapter 9, because we're introduced to Saul, who becomes the first king of Israel, and he starts out good. He really does start out good. When Samuel, the first time the prophet comes and meets um, Saul, this is what uh, Saul says in Samuel, 1 Samuel nine twenty one, Saul Saul answered, "'Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin?' You know, at, at first, even though it says that Saul stood a full head and shoulders above everyone else in the crowd, even though he was taller and, and good looking, at first he understood who he was and he was humble, but this doesn't last long. And as we see in chapter 13, as, Paul is, uh, as Saul is preparing to go into battle with the Philistines, Samuel instructs him, do not go into the battle until I get there and sacrifice a, a sacrifice to the Lord. Wait for me. This is what the Lord has commanded. Well, Saul goes to where he's to start the battle and seven days pass by and Samuel has still not showed up and the, his army begins to get afraid and they begin deserting him. And so instead of waiting for Samuel, and by the way, the Lord was testing Saul to see if he would trust him, to see if he would obey him. Listen, God does this, uh, allows us into trials. Are we gonna trust him? When things, everything's around us seems to be falling apart in in, uh, Saul's situation, the army's leaving. He's like, okay, God's not gonna act. So I'm gonna act. I know I'm gonna disobey him, but I've gotta do it or nobody's gonna do it. And so he, instead of waiting for Samuel and obeying the command of the Lord, Saul took things into his own hands and he offered the sacrifice that only priests were authorized to Make and to offer. And you know what the, th- the sad thing is? Immediately after he does this, Samuel arrives and he catches him red handed. And then in First Samuel 13 11, it's, he says, Samuel says, What have you done? What should Saul have said? Oh man, I sinned. Right, let's see if that's what he says. And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. If you're taking notes, you can write this down, the proud are masters at blame shifting. The proud, aren't we? When we're proud, we're just masters at blame shifting. Isn't that what he's doing here? Instead of fully owning his sin and repenting, of his sin, he confesses his sin and he blame shifts. He's like, "You know, yeah, I shouldn't have done that." But Samuel, it's actually your fault that I did because because you were late. You were late and everybody was starting to scatter, and so I forced myself to disobey and to do your job. So yes, I wasn't totally right, but you were more wrong than me because you didn't come when you should have. And this is exactly, again, what our father Adam did in the garden when God confronted him with his sin, when when Adam took of of the fruit. Who does he come to first? Gentlemen, he comes to the man. He comes to the man and he said, what'd you do? And what does Adam do? He says, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. What is, what is, what's Adam saying? God, it's your fault. Because, I mean, you gave me this woman here. No, Adam. You're responsible for your actions and for what you did. You're blame shifting. And when God confronts us, and this is something that we all need to be aware of when God confronts us, we all need to be aware of the tendency that we have to blame others for our sins and failures rather than taking responsibility. I know this guy that struggles with this. His name is James Nysong. But you know what? It's really not his fault. It's Jaws. And throughout Saul's reign, um, we see the pattern of dishonesty. We see disobedience and the inability to fully own his sin, which ultimately, ultimately leads to his downfall. And in chapter 15, he partially obeys God. Now, when you partially obey God, you fully disobey Him, when you partially obey Him. And that's what Paul do, uh, Saul does. God told him to totally obliterate the, the Amalekites. These were a wicked people who had done wrong to Israel when they were going through the wilderness, and God said, totally obliter- obliterate them. And he kind of, he doesn't do it all the way. He saves the good parts from the war and the battle, and he spares the king, and then he sets up a monument for himself, to honor himself. And this reveals the heart of of Saul. It reveals that his desire was to receive praise and glory that was due only to God. That's what pride is, desiring to be God, to be served as God, to be worshiped as God, to be God. And so the Lord rejects. Saul as king. And in chapter 16, we're introduced to David, the insignificant shepherd boy at first, who becomes Israel's second and most, like I said earlier, beloved king of all times. And so the way this happens is that God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse, David's father, to anoint David as king. And, and, and so Samuel has Jesse's sons go before him. Let's look at 1 Samuel Chapter 16, verse 6, it says, When Jesse's sons came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, and this is one of the most famous verses from 1 Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And all of Jesse's sons pass before Samuel. And in verse 10, Samuel says to Jesse, that the Lord has not chosen these. None of these sons are his anointed. And In verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. If you're taking notes, the next gospel truth I want you to write down is that the humble are exalted through faith-filled obedience. The humble are exalted through faith-filled obedience. I don't think it ever entered David's mind that one day he would be the king of Israel. That's not what he was desiring. That's not what he was seeking after. He he was being, when, when God called him, where was he? He was being faithfully obedient in the mundane job that his father had given him to watch sheep. He doesn't even know that Samuel is in town. He's not nervous. He's on the backside of a mountain being obedient to his father. And God, who does not withhold good things from those who walk uprightly, he made sure that David was installed and anointed as king. And I I think that one of the things that qualified David to be king was that he wasn't seeking to be king. That's not what he was seeking to be. Rather, he was seeking to know God and to glorify God and to make the Lord's name known. And the reason that we know this is because when you go to chapter 17, Saul and his armies are terrified of this nine and a half foot tall giant by the name of Goliath, right? I've got a a little picture here that uh, I want you to look at. This is not a picture of me and Terry. <laughs> yeah, it's, he said you can tell by the hair. Yes. But that kind of gives, maybe gives you a perspective of, of what uh, Goliath looks like. And if you know the, most people know, have heard of David and Goliath, but for 40 days, the Israelites and the Philistines are uh, apart from one another. And Goliath comes out and he curses and he mocks the God of Israel, day after day. And so when David rolls up on the scene, he's not even in the the, uh, army. He comes and he hears the blasphemous boasts of Goliath. And in 1 Samuel 17, verse 26, it it says, And David said to the men who stood by him. And I want you to hear, I I don't know if you can hear this, but I I sense this kind of like this agitation in David's spirit when he says this. He's hearing Goliath cursing his God. And he's saying, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And and David, because he was humble, he's not trying to, to make a name for himself. He's not like trying to glorify himself but rather the name of the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 17, verse 43, it says, And the Philistine, when David goes out to fight the Philistine, Goliath says, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, and to the beasts of the field. And then I love, this is like, this is one of those just most glorious responses that David gives. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the, bo- the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That all, here's why, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David's faith is not in himself. It is in the God that he came to know, probably when he was on the backside of the mountain, being obedient to the Lord in isolation. He knew his Lord and unlike Saul, he was passionate about exalting God's name above his own. And so he didn't, need, he didn't feel the need to strive in his own flesh to make things happen for himself. And you know, one of the, the, the things about the good news that we want to preach here all the time is that we are saved by grace. We are not saved from our sins by our good works. We cannot, uh, through our efforts, do enough to cover our sins by being good enough. We needed a savior, right? We needed a champion that we, fa- that we find in Jesus Christ to defeat sin and to defeat death. And this is why David and Goliath is such a wonderful picture of the gospel because back in biblical times when two warring armies came together, sometimes they would, instead of all of them fighting each other, they would settle the battle by sending out their greatest champion to fight one another, as is, as is in this account. Goliath and Israel didn't think they had one until David comes out there. And so when David comes out and he slings that rock and it sinks into his head and he kills Goliath and he cuts off his head, when David defeats his enemy, when he conquered Goliath, all of Israel, not only... Um, defeated, the Philistines were not only just defeated, but all of Israel was imputed or credited with David's victory. They got credit for what David did. Isn't that such a beautiful picture of the gospel? Because when Jesus defeated sin, when he defeated death, our two greatest enemies, all of us who are in Christ also were imputed or given credit for what Jesus did, we were given his righteousness. We were given victory over death. And that is such a, such a beautiful picture of the gospel. And what we're seeing here is that David's humble trust in God plays out over and over and over as uh, King Saul futilely attempts to kill David and tr- by trying to hold on to the throne, which God had promised that he was going to give David, and David never takes matters into his own hands when he could have. We see this in chapter 26. David, late at night, Saul is chasing him, and late at night, they are sleeping, and David and some of his men go into the camp while they are sleeping, and they come up to Saul. They find Saul asleep on the ground. And in 1 Samuel 26, 8, it says, Then Abishai... Said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. What he's doing is he's tempting David to take matters into his own hands. He knows he's going to be king. Go ahead and do it now. Do it with your own strength and your own timing. But David knew the Lord. Verse 9, But David said to him, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let's go. Basically, what David's saying is, I don't need to strive. I don't have to sin in order to take care of myself because the Lord has promised that there's no good thing that he will withhold from those who walk uprightly. And at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies, and then at the beginning of 2 Samuel, David finally takes the throne, and as he trusts in the Lord, he prospers greatly, and, and the Lord finally unifies the 12 tribes under one kingdom, under his rule. But then, but then, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, things change. It starts out this way, 2 Samuel 11 verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him. And all Israel. But David, the king, remained at Jerusalem. So it appears that something's changed in David's heart. It looks like pride has crept in. This is when the king should have gone out and done what he was called to do and lead his troops. But he's like, I'm just going to stay home. Maybe he was tired, he decides that he's going to take a break from being a king. Verse 2 says, it happened. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Okay, that's not a good thing. Late one afternoon, he's getting out of bed. And was walking on the roof of, of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. We know that her name was Bathsheba. And in his pride, David sinfully abuses his power and the authority that God had given him as king, and he commits adultery with Bathsheba. She uh, gets pregnant, and then instead of humbling himself, instead of confessing his sin and repenting, David tries to cover it up, and he devises a plot to take Bathsheba's righteous husband, Uriah, and he sends him out onto the front lines of the battlefield and has him Killed, Thinking that it could be a cover-up, then he takes Bathsheba and marries her. But just as God doesn't withhold good from those who walk uprightly, he also doesn't withhold his discipline from those he loves. And so he sends a prophet by the name of Nathan to David. and, And Nathan basically says, you are the man. You sinned against the Lord by taking Bathsheba and killing Uriah. And in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The last gospel truth that I want to end on this morning is this true repentance leads to forgiveness. And life. True forgiveness, repentance leads to forgiveness and life. And here's where David proved to be different from Saul, because both kings sinned in this situation, in their lives. They both sinned, and God sent prophets to both of them to confront them. But the difference is that Saul half-heartedly confessed his sin, whereas David confessed totally, and he repented, and he experienced forgiveness and life. You know what the difference? You can confess your sin, but not repent. You can say, yeah, I know I've got lots of faults about myself. I'm human with no intentions of changing not realizing that your sin is against God. That's what Saul did. David, when he sinned, his heart was pricked and he realized, I've sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. He realized that he had brought uh, shame to the name of the Lord. He wasn't concerned about himself anymore. He was concerned about the name of his God. That's what repentance is, is when we sin and we realize this is bringing shame to the to to God. I'm rebelling against God, and we confess it, we forsake it, and we return to the Lord. And David does this, and he finds forgiveness, and he and he experiences life. But there were consequences for his sins from that day forward. From that day forward, there was death and chaos in his home. Bathsheba's baby died. David's. Daughter was sexually violated by her half-brother, Amnon. Amnon is later put to death by Absalom, his brother. And Absalom, David's son, seeks to overthrow his father by stealing the hearts of the people. Lots of bad things happen in the house of David. Later, Absalom is put to death as he hung in, uh, by his long locks of hair in a terebinth tree. And you know the thing about David is that initially it looks like he might be that savior that was prophesied back in Genesis 3:15 and throughout the Old Testament. But clearly as his life unfolds, he falls short. And so what 1st and 2nd Samuel teaches us is that a human king is not enough. A human king is not sufficient enough to save us. Even the best of the best are flawed and broken. And that we need a sinless king who can save us, not just from our earthly oppressors, but also who can save us from sin and death. And you know, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God actually comes to David and says, you're not going to be able to remain forever, but I'm going to give you a descendant. There is going to come a king from you who is going to come and, And build my temple on the earth and set up his eternal kingdom. That promise is found in 2 Samuel. And that's where we're going to move forward in the rest of the Old Testament as we go towards the New Testament. And we know that that descendant that's prophesied in 2 Samuel is Jesus, who is known as the son of David. And so as I'm closing this morning, let me ask you this. Where do you think David is today? He's with the Lord. Why is David with the Lord? Well, we know it's not because he was a good guy, right? Because he was sinless. I mean, he's done some pretty bad things as we just went through. His life, in some ways, was a a total wreck at the end. But he's with the Lord, and the question is, why? It's because he repented of his sin. And he looked forward to the coming Savior that was prophesied in 2 Samuel 7. And you know what? We do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. We are not going to be with the Lord because we are, have been good enough. But if we will all come to a place of repentance, if you will come to a place of repentance, not look forward, but look back at the cross of Jesus Christ and put your faith in him. Whether you did it 30 years ago or today's your first day, we want to continue to look at what Christ has done for us because that is where we are going to find our hope. And this is, that is what First and Second Samuel point to. Now, I, I want to encourage you all to do the same.